What is it? Uh, well, it's called a uh, randomizer, and it's fitted to the guidance systems and operates under a very complex scientific principle called potluck. Now, no one knows where we're going. Not even the Black Guardian. Not even us. Hello, and welcome to the Randomizer Podcast, Episode 3. I'm Tim. And my given name is Charles Patrick Andrew Octoloni. I call him Chaz. As usual, a spoiler warning for the latest Doctor Who episode, Orphan 55, and indeed all Doctor Who that preceded it. Also, a spoiler warning for all future Doctor Who, in case any of our speculations prove accurate. (laughs) Seems unlikely. Alright, yeah, fair enough. You make a good point. So, we're going to start with discussing Orphan 55. Um, Now, Chaz and I both really enjoyed Spyfall, which was a great, strong opener, and so we had, I think it's fair to say, really high hopes for... Orphan 55, but it's also fair to say I think we were both rather disappointed. To put it mildly. Yeah, so mainly our problem with the episode was based around the ending, the last couple of minutes. So we're going to talk about that first, so that we can talk about the body of the episode separately, and that way end on a high note, hopefully. For me, the the whole tone of it was completely soapbox. It was like being mm. preached at for two minutes. Yep. Um, I was really dismayed by it. I've cooled down a lot since then, but... I still think it was a two-minute ending that really wrecked what was all otherwise a fairly enjoyable episode for me. Yeah, I'll get on to the episode, obviously, but uh, yeah, the ending royally pissed me off. There was no subtlety to it. It was patronising. It was basically taking what had gone before in the episode and then spelling it out to you as if you were too bloody stupid to realise what the episode was about. And I mean... Children could have worked out what the episode was about. There wasn't any particular subtlety to it anyway. But the other thing as well is she spends two minutes, three minutes, whatever, doing this whole preachy soapbox bit when they've just escaped from the planet and two people are still on the planet basically facing certain death. I know. And it's like, fuck them. It was very strange. I was kind of expecting and would have much preferred if the last two minutes of the show had been a thrilling rescue of Kane and Belle. It felt cheap, and that's what I thought about this ending, the more I've reflected on it. Yeah, I mean, it was completely shoehorned. I've got no problem with the message, right? Because I know that on Twitter people are going mentally, anybody dislikes it and says, oh, that's because you're whatever, you know, you don't agree with us. I'm down with the message. I mean, it's very important. Climate change is a huge issue. No problem with that. But But that's why it's cheap. It it undermines the sort of work that the episode has done up to that point to try and make some sort of, you know, drama about this. Mm. And by the Doctor delivering this rant to, well, to who? To her companions? Not really. It's more sort of down the camera. I mean, it's more annoyingly down the camera than Merry Christmas to all of you at home. Do you know what it reminded me of? Do you remember back in the 80s when you used to watch the He-Man cartoons and so on and so forth? I did not watch those, but tell me. Well, anyway, what they used to do was they'd have the episode, blah, 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 and then He-Man would literally turn to camera and say, Skeletor found in this episode that being awful to your friends leaves you with no friends. You should realise that and you should make friends with people and you know, and it was like the most fucking patronising, moralising pile of shit. 
Yeah, and of course you've already got that if you've been watching the episode. Yeah. I don't want to be relentlessly negative <sighs> about it. I was just felt so disappointed after such a strong start mm. to the season. I mean, you know, Spyfall was written by Chris Chibnall. Mm. We loved it yep. broadly, and yep. this was written by Ed Heim, who we previously met uh, writing mm. "It Takes You Away." But we're not certain. I mean, where the script editing comes into here, if if this last two minutes is the work of Chris Chibnall, or if it's if it's all Ed Heim. But either way, it stuck out like a sore thumb. It soured the episode, which I'd quite enjoyed. We'll talk about the body of it more in a minute yeah. because you enjoyed it less, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't think it was it, it held together very well. No, well, let's get into that because I think we will inevitably come back to the ending again and again. Uh, one more thing about the Twitter reaction, though, actually, first, which is that you've got to be subtle in what you respond to here because there's presumably a bunch of people out there who are just saying, "Oh, blooming environmental, oh. blooming woke, whatever," mm. and as Chad says that's not our complaint here our complaint is that this was a really important message a really important theme delivered terribly jumping out and ramming it down your throat in a way which i think completely undermines any awareness that you might raise or any kind of galvanizing call to action that it it might be it just raises people's heckles when they're preached at and when they're sort of spoken down to that's not the way to win people over there is a debate and i've encountered this debate in the kind of atheism community about what's the best way to sort of advocate for that and there's sort of schools of thought that maybe every approach has its validity and you'll reach some people with a more in-your-face approach and you'll reach other people with a subtler, much more reasoned and gradual approach. And I certainly can see the benefit in that, but to my particular taste, this was entirely off-putting and completely counterproductive. I mean, there's definitely better ways of doing it. You know, I mean, you only look at something, let's say, The Green Death, it's got a strong environmental message, mm-hmm. but it's not you're not hit over the head with it. You can watch the episode and understand what it's saying to you without the Doctor standing on a soapbox at the very end. I mean, they've done that countless times. I mean, you know, the argument that they're using as Doctor Who's always been political or whatever. Yes, it has. And it's always had a message, but it's always done it with style. Now, we'll come back to this episode later, but I have been watching, as has Chaz, the Almost People. And I noticed at the end of that episode, the Doctor sends uh, the survivors into, I guess, the boardroom of the company and tasks them with the mission of dismantling the infrastructure that enslaves the flesh. And he doesn't do it for them. So it's it's you can draw a parallel. This is a you know a huge ethical issue, an imperative issue that needs to be sorted out. But the elegance of the writing and the delivery of that denouement in that particular episode, compared with this sledgehammer at the end of Orphan Fifty Five, it's chalk and cheese. And the reason I'm so bothered about it is really nothing to do with the topic or the content of it. It was the it's bad writing and then mm. my worry is this jeopardizes the series because you know it can cont- if it continues to hit notes like that that sour uh, an otherwise half decent episode, then it's not going to succeed as a series. It's it's gonna undermine itself and I love Doctor Who, I want it to continue, yeah. but I want it to be good. I remember when the series came back, Russell T. Davis was saying, yes, it's a family show, it's got a children's audience as well, but there's nothing to say that you can't write well for children as well. Exactly. You know, and this felt like, oh, at the bad old days of children's TV. Yes. You know, this isn't the standard you're used to. You know, you're used to a higher standard 
of writing for the show. It's a clever show, it's inventive. That wasn't clever and inventive writing, that was literally just... Soapbox. Soapbox. Yeah, preaching. Let's quell our anger yeah. and move on. Um, because I think the body of the show had a lot of interest in it, and obviously our differing opinions will come out about that. But I wanted to actually lead us into that discussion by reading a thread that I discovered on Twitter talking about the, that episode. The thread was by Max Curtis, who is at Max C. Curtis. And Max kindly um, gave me permission to discuss the thread on the podcast. So thank you, Max. So I'm just going to plunge on in. Orphan 55 is many things, but it's not, brackets, just a milk toast, please recycle platitude. The episode also comments on how capitalist luxury carves out increasingly tiny oases of lush, illusory paradise, even as it turns the world outside into dust. So the thread continues with real world examples of the effects of climate change. Max sums that up saying, luxury is deeply implicated in environmental catastrophe and the suffocation of humanity. These are all themes Doctor Who's been forced to confront in recent years, from oxygen to arachnids in the UK with a luxury hotel built on toxic waste. So, Orphan 55, we get one major thing right. Even as capitalist luxury helps destroy the world, it'll profit off it. City too polluted? Buy an oxygen indulgence flat. Wildfires choking half your country? Tesla cars have a defence mode so you can barrel through the Anthropocene. The function of luxury, Orphan 55 implies, is to insulate us from long-term annihilation with short-term goodies, and to shield us from at the outside, knowingly tricking ourselves because we all know what's beyond the ionic membrane. That's not to argue Orphan 55 is a secret work of genius, but let's push back against it having no subtlety. There's loads going on under the surface. So why does it stay under the surface? Well, we get three big ideas. The Spacey Spa, CO2 People Monsters, and a post-apocalyptic Earth. So the fatal flaw with Tranquility Spa is Kane. Unlike Kerblam, we get a head honcho figure. Unlike anything I've ever seen, they're also head of security? We don't get Kane's backstory, wants, or even day-to-day -day job. Did she design this? Is the spa a reflection of her? We get eight guest actors, plus the usual four. But overcrowding isn't the only issue. The characters are all a little too comfortable. Benny knows Vilma loves him. Nevi's incompetent, but not insecure. Kane's a hardened gun-toter, because. What if they were more vulnerable? Benny's proposing to save his relationship. Maybe Nevi not getting machines mirrors him not understanding his son. Kane's a corporate suit, but as her dream project crumbles, she's forced, awkwardly, to take up security too. I'd even combine them. Kane has a partner secretly wanting to propose, and a kid who's talented exactly how she isn't. She's single-handedly doing maintenance, security, struggling to keep her family and the resort together. Then the doctor and friends waltz in. Problem two, the dregs who look way better in dark close-up than bright light and stop-motion-y movement. Orphan 55 can't decide whether climate change is an individual or system problem, and that indecision is the kind of honest strength. But then who are the monsters? If the environmental point is that individuals can make a difference, but only systemic change can save the planet, then humanity turning into monsters if we succumb to this moral failing doesn't quite scan, because you, Steve from Stevenage, aren't the real monster here. Oh, and one quick final problem. The reveal that this is actually Earth is undermined by making it Siberia, which people imagine is a frozen wasteland. But thanks to climate change and nuclear war alerts now um, a warmer wasteland? Why not set this summer lush and green? So, when Ed Heim kills the Earth, I think he's gesturing at a subtler point than the end speech implies. Orphan 55 says that climate change is violence, that luxury is its disguise, or shield, profiting off shrinking oases of oxygen indulgence capital, and that this relationship destabilises what it means to be human. 
what luxury is sustainable in the monster's Anthropocene. So I'm glad this episode exists. It's the kind of Doctor Who I want more of, so even when the insane editing made my eyes go, no, my brain said yes. So that's the thread by Max. It sort of, it turned around my kind of reaction to the episode somewhat because I think it's right. The other problems that the episode suffers from are everybody kind of has a thing going on and there's a vast cast, but we sort of get kind of one note from each of them. Everybody's got kind of one thing going on. I mean, there was so many random threads in it and it just it just held together abysmally. Given know? that population is one of the drivers of climate change, yeah. it's ironic that overpopulation of characters is one of the problems of this episode. Yeah. We don't get a nice sense of how Belle goes from, you know, lost child, disappointed that her mother's not around, to bomb-toting terrorist. I mean, and did you notice again that's another bad parent scenario? Yes. Like in his last one, so maybe he's, uh, <laughs> maybe he needs some therapy. Well, perhaps Kane was prone to faking monsters through the home hi-fi. Mm. No, I mean, that's a recurring theme which obviously chimes with Ryan's character and I did enjoy the interplay between Ryan and Belle. Their flirtation was was fun. I loved the sort of dropping of all the pretense and the honesty when the threat is imminent. Mm. I think it just happened so fast that you hadn't really had much meat out of it before the reveal. I I mean, if you notice, we are literally less than 10 minutes into the episode when everything goes tits up. I mean, there's no chance to grow in that episode or no chance to sort of absorb it. I know it's fast paced but you're not really getting anything you start off in the TARDIS quite a fun little scene with the tentacle porn etc <laughs> and stuff, that's fine you know and then we're transported to a holiday planet which I mean, does the Doctor really need to win a competition? I mean I'm sure they could go anywhere but anyway. I liked all of this I mean, it, it, was, it was fun There was. It, I, I'm not complaining about it, I'm just saying you know silly nonsense. I like the whole bit with Ryan with the virus and him, you know, chasing imaginary bats and stuff. That was great. It was a nice little bit of slapstick, which I like. What you said about Laura Fraser's character, you know, I mean, I was really confused as to who the hell she was and Mm -hmm. I I didn't realise up until quite later on that she was in charge of yes. the whole place. I thought she was security, like you said. And it was well, this is Max's just a bit of right. a mess. Yeah. You know? I think she is a weird amalgamation of mm. the boss and the head of security. It's sort of like the boss was on his annual leave at that point or something, mm. but it is a strange one. But the early part of the episodes was delightful in many ways and actually real nice interplay with the characters. The Doctor had a wonderful line about a kind of spam, which I can't quite remember. Something like elastic bands and a tin of spam and I could remake you. That was great. I loved that. The Ryan and the Bats, Ryan and yep. Bell. I think a lot of Graham stuff. There's a lot going on that mm. was all nicely pitched, beautifully yeah. played. It was nice and it was sort of, you know, a nice little piece of banter. Interesting little bit at the start, though, when... Um, Yaz says to the Doctor, get you out your Marty mood. Obviously a bit of foreshadowing of things to come. The first thing I didn't like in it was when they arrived at the planet and they were met by... Barf. What the fuck was that supposed to be? I mean, I know they were saying, oh, well, it's a cat. They've done cat people in Doctor Who that look far more effective. That looked like they'd just got something out of pound shop. And people on Twitter have been comparing it to Barf from Spaceballs. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that as well. What is it? Hyphen with a three. 
that's where the humour sort of juddered a little bit. The character doesn't really grow or develop in any way. So I don't it's think to warm any to them. of them do, really. If you notice throughout the episode, everybody's sacrificing themselves. Nearly every single character goes and sacrifices themselves, mm. apart from the daughter who wants to blow the place up. Yeah. And Space J in between us in the UFO bloody wigs. The the woman, the old woman and the man, yeah. I mean, that actress was awful. She, uh, j- Benny! Benny! <laughs> Benny! Monta Benny! I mean, seriously, I had her throw her at the fucking uh, motor. She was annoying as fuck. And that whole bit about uh, two questions Will you marry me? And will somebody kill me? What the fuck? Also, you suddenly get outside, he's gone. You don't know what's happened to him. That you don't was know. Weird. And then Laura Fraser's character says, I shot him, and everybody's annoyed at her. It must have been a deliberate decision, I think, mm. not to depict the deaths in any way. Do we see a corpse at all? I don't remember. No. I think they're just gone. No, um, you don't see anything. And yeah, the sort of internal logic didn't quite make sense that for some reason they carry Benny around half the planet before doing something horrible to him that's alluded to that means he's desperate to die in Cain obliges. Why did they take him, right? They'd killed three quarters of the population of the spa, right? Within the first ten minutes of the episode, all these do 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 all these dots. So why did he survive? So why the fuck did he survive? I feel like I must have missed a line somewhere that explains that. I'm not sure. I seriously doubt it. So for all those kind of enjoyable moments at the beginning, it's sort of disintegrated as an episode for me and so by the end, even before the infamous ending, I was already kind of feeling like it was a bit incoherent. The episode felt like a rip-off of Mysterious Planet with elements of Midnight and the monsters uh, were the hoiks zooped up, but also they had the motivation of the haemovores. Yes. who had developed out of a t- Earth was a toxic sludge. The environmental message was handled much better in that. I liked the moment with the Doctor discovering that she could breathe when she was next to the monster. I did mm. spend the whole episode thinking, is that the same one that was chasing Elton in Love and Monsters? And then had to Google to remind myself yeah. that, no, that's called the Hikes. I wondered if there was a sort of a conscious attempt to retell that kind of story in Mysterious Planet and maybe with a bit of Curse of Steinrich thrown in. It made me think of when the next generation of Star Trek, when that series was young, mm. it sort of retrod a couple of the classic stories. So we had Where No One Has Gone Before, which mm. was a sort yeah. of throwback to Where No Man Has Gone Before. And both exist in the same fictional universe, but there was a definitely a sense of let's do that plot again for, for this version of the show. Yeah, but I mean, this show now, this new version of Doctor Who has been going for about 12 years. Yeah, true. We're on series 12, and now we're thinking, oh, let's go back and redo it. I mean, seriously, what the fuck? On the other hand, I don't think the show can be a slave to its own past to the extent that you can't tread the same ground thematically. No, nope. I agree. you know, climate change as a, as a topic is innately vast and huge and Mm. there's lots of ways to address it for sure I feel that this is a a muddle of an episode with some delightful bits especially Mm. at the opening but one which throws itself completely under the bus at the end with a a really clumsy and blunt and patronising attempt to like Mm. you said to turn to the camera and tell people the moral for the day I didn't hate hate it, I know it sounds like I did, (laughs) you know there's a lot of elements I dislike but 
compared to his last story, I liked it more for certain things. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, I agree with what Max said about the monsters. That was my exact thought at the start. When you were in the strobe lighting, and Mm. and they looked brilliant. They looked absolutely terrifying. Then the usual thing of taking it into the light and it just doesn't look as good. You know, I mean, it's like, say, it's a bad example in a lot of ways, but the marker could have actually worked if you'd have just done it in... In darkness. With, or with strobe. I did an edit of that scene where I put a red filter over it and a flashing light and a siren going off, darkened it down and cut it a bit. And it does... I mean, it's not brilliant in any way but it looks a hell of a lot more effective you want to stick it on youtube um at some point maybe (laughs) yeah i think we'll move on from orphan 55 um but thank you for surviving through all of that um it's because we love this show so much it made me feel nervous yeah i i totally agree see i mean last year i was very vocal about i didn't like the series I don't want to be that guy. I've loved Doctor Who my entire life since I was a child. I still love it. My son loves it. It's part of my DNA. I just don't like seeing it abused. And this is what it feels like. Word. Maybe, maybe. We must ask the Doctor. So it's time once more to ask Dr. Schultz. Let's hear from our very own scientific advisor. So we've been asking previously about some of the core ideas underpinning Doctor Who, like time travel and regeneration. This week I wanted to ask about the other great and innovative idea that's been in the show since the beginning, the magic box that's bigger on the inside than the outside. So welcome, Dr. Schultz. Can you explain to the listeners how the current understanding of multidimensional brain space might compete with string theory in offering maybe a theoretical underpinning to the idea of compacted multidimensional spaces? Could something like the TARDIS be a practical reality? Well, of course, this is completely implausible. Thank you, Dr. Schultz. It's always fascinating to hear the insights of a working scientist on these things. A man is the sum of his memories, you know, a time lord even more so. And it's time for Your Cheating Memory, which is the part of the show where we randomly select an episode of Doctor Who to watch. But before we watch it, we discuss what we can remember of it, which for me can be quite a little. Last time we selected the Rebel Flesh and the Almost People, and we have both since re-watched that. So, Chaz, take it away. This actual episode, to begin with, it sort of didn't feel as if it was going to be that important, but as we know, it turned out to be very important. What I liked at the start was how much the TARDIS just felt lived in. Because when you start off, Amy and Rory are playing darts. Yes. They've got music on in the background. I half expected Amy to be handed round the beers. It felt like a group of mates that were sharing a flat. And that sort of shows you the camaraderie between them. Yes, and I think the craft of the arc of the season is really apparent there because mm. in the middle of all this comfort, mm. they're so comfortable with each other. Yeah. There's the doctor fretting about, is Amy pregnant? Is she not yeah. pregnant? Absolutely. And dropping back in in the middle of this arc, it's really interesting to see the careful scripting and the care with which these things are set up because, as it turns out, these two episodes lay the foundations for the next huge step forward in, I guess, the story of the Doctor Absolutely, and, and yeah. the Ponds. Yeah, definitely. The interesting thing is that I for many, many years, was not a fan of Amy Pond or Karen Gillan. I have my uh, shocked face on Yeah. Now, I was very vocal about that. I didn't really have a lot of time for her. I didn't think much of the character. I have since done a whole 180 
on it because I rewatched the Matt Smith series um, maybe about a year or two ago and I found every time I rewatched Matt Smith's stories more than most doctors I love him more mm. and I love the characters more I absolutely adore the pawns now I mean I always liked Rory but I found a newfound love for Amy that's nice. You know, I just think, and, and Karen Gillan as well. I've seen her in what Marvel movies, the Jumanjis, the, you know, interviews in general. I just realise that she's got such a wonderful personality as an actress anyway. She's very sort of approachable and so on. But the character of Amy felt clunky to begin with, but she's so natural. That it is such a great rapport mm-hmm. between them all. And in this story particularly... It's really interesting that sort of her prejudice rises, you know, in this episode in a sort of, well, a bit of an ugly way. Yeah, absolutely. Know? But this is the point of the story arc, mm. isn't it? And absolutely. That's why Moffat is such a good writer with the long game. Mm. And he can sort of just nudge things into place and assemble all the pieces and then do the big reveal because the end of the second episode where the Doctor turns the sonic screwdriver on and Amy dissolves into flesh is breathtaking Mm. so all the comfort all the coziness in the TARDIS family is in a moment wrecked and it's so powerful watching Rory back away from Amy and Amy look at him they're all performing beautifully in that moment. She looks terrified. Yeah, and he looks kind of distraught and desolate Mm. and it's really interesting to see his trust in the Doctor prove so strong, or the Doctor's force of personality prove so strong that would make Rory back away from Amy that way. I think it was an absolutely horrible moment. It really felt a horrible moment because... It's it's unsettling. She plays that absolute terror very well and he's got this decision to make and then Rory's obviously just completely bewildered by the whole thing. He spends most of the story quite bewildered and of course he's (laughs) a complete dupe for Jennifer's ganger. This wheel is just too tough for a girl to turn. You feeling strong? I'll break out the big guns. Let's talk about the the other cast in the show. So you'd mentioned last week admiring the actor playing the leader. Uh, who's Yeah, Rachel Caster. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's Rachel or Raquel. It's spelled R-A-Q-U-E-L. Mm. Yeah. But whichever way, she is fantastic. She yeah. plays Cleves. You mentioned also Jimmy Bonner. Bonner. I mean, the, the scene where he dies, the real version of him dies. In his own arms. In his own arms. I mean, it is actually very touching and also incredibly sad. It's so well played. And when he says to him, you know, go and be a dad sort of thing, mm. you know what I mean? I was actually genuinely starting to sort of tear up a lot because yeah, it was a beautiful scene. That's lovely. And it's like that idea of you're dying you won't ever see your child again but knowing that your child won't be affected by the hurt of losing his parent yeah, because the other version of you will still be there. The whole thing is a great exploration of humanity yes. and what it means to be human and are we more than the sum of our memories. Yeah, and it's a very uplifting episode in mm. many ways, or pair of episodes, because of the decisions that some of the characters make. You sort of see Jennifer being lost at some point and then she literally becomes a monster once mm. she's given up that compassion and that humanity. Yeah. Um, whereas you see Cleves regain her kind of humanity and making a sacrifice the one big thing that struck me this time was that this is Matt Smith's doctor 
as Sylvester McCoy's manipulative doctor. Mm. It's really, really dark in some ways. And yeah. The swapping of the shoes and the kind of social experiment with Amy and the darkness in him when he's worked out what he needs to work out and he knows that she's flesh is really satisfying and enjoyable. And Matt Smith, mm. of course, plays it brilliantly. But I noticed he's also the master manipulator in how he forces Jimmy's ganger to sort of confront his own feelings yeah. by arranging the phone call with his son. This is pure Seventh Doctor stuff, I think. Yeah, definitely. Sarah Smart, I think, is wonderful as, as Jennifer. She plays the vulnerable side of the character. I think it's overplayed, but deliberately so. Yeah, I think so. She was, as Cleves had pointed out, she was uh, such a sweet, a sweet girl. girl. And it's as if the ganger has taken that element of sweet, maybe downtrodden, and is determined to be strong. She mentions that scene at the start when, you know, she was a child in the Red West and she was looking for a stronger Jennifer and that is what the ganger becomes the stronger Jennifer but by gaining that strength she loses her humanity yeah it's a good arc I think mm. Buzzer feels like he kind of just does his thing he doesn't really yeah. develop much to well, the it's episode a bit, bit of a shame because Marshall Lancaster is um, quite a good actor I mean he was one of the regulars in Life on Mars and Ashes to Ashes Matthew Graham wrote those two so it was bit of a shame I felt he was underused a little bit well not as much as Dickon though who I had forgotten even existed yeah. and he gets some moment at the end of course but it's it's very slight the character yeah. feels a bit left out yeah you could probably have done without him without impacting yeah, the plot yeah you could have probably killed him off instead of Marshall Lancaster another um thing I found incredibly creepy and so well done was when they discovered the corpses of the flesh. Oh yes, all mangled together. Oh my god, that was horrific and it was so sad when um, you find out they're still conscious. Yes. Absolutely harrowing little scene. Till the, the end scene in the TARDIS, it's mm. probably Rory's sort of pivotal moment, I yeah. think. And he becomes, you know, morally yeah, I mean, infused. He goes on. through quite a journey on this story, mm. I think. Um, yeah, okay, he does the whole macho silliness thing throughout. He's a, still a very naive character, you know, and he, he, I think he believes in the inherent good in everyone, which is rather lovely. I see there the Pons being a couple who trust each other. Mm. Rory is drawn in a kind of slightly patronising way to Jennifer. Yeah. And and him and Amy do exchange a look, and yeah. there's a sort of granting of but permission. She, she was she seemed completely comfortable. Yeah, and there's I an understanding a, there. Yeah, and I thought that that was really a nice nice thing, you know, because Eliezer right would have put her as jealous, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the fact that she knew that that was how Rory was, he would help people. I don't think it was patronised. I think it's just part of Rory's compassion, That's part of his goodness as a nurse. Yes, true. as well. You know, he's he wants to help. He always wants to help people. Yeah. And that's why I like him as a character, because he's, he's very optimistic and stuff. I thought he was really good in this episode. Yeah, me too. But when I give the word, press the button. The big one, yes, maybe it works in conjunction with the others. Having enjoyed the rebel flesh and the almost people tremendously, we are now going to press the button and generate a new random story to watch. So let's see what we get. All right, well, let's try and find out. Now, what could it be? <laughs> Curse of the Black Spot. Hmm. You're pulling a face. Just a bit of a shame. It's another Matt Smith. <laughs> no, I like Matt Smith. It's just. It'd be nice to be more random with our Yeah, randomness. It's all been new series so far as well. That's true. I should check the settings. 
Yep, all the doctors are in there, so we're definitely not being incompetent with that. Okay, that's fine. In terms of episode count, how even are Classic Who and New Who now? Oh, Which wow. one was 150? Was that Silver Nemesis or something? Uh, I think it was Dragonfire. Dragonfire, that's right, I remember. So that would make what, 158. Yeah. yeah, so we're pretty much even. Yeah, in mm. which case it shouldn't be too much of a surprise if we favour New Who mm. quite a lot. Anyway, for whatever reason, the uh, internet randomizer has given us the curse of the black spot. So, pirates, obviously. Yeah. Well, I mean, pirates are fun! <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually remember a huge amount about it. It's not one that I think I've rewatched. If I remember, the guy from Downton Abbey's in it, Hugh Bonneville. Oh, yes. He's the captain. Yes. And I think Lily Cole, she was Matt Smith's girlfriend at right. some point. She plays the, the siren. The sort of thing. spirit that appears. Um, it's, I wouldn't say it's one of the best, but it's, again, it's good fun. It's probably in the romp category, yeah. isn't it? It's definitely a romp. Nothing wrong with it. Maybe when I rewatch it, I'll find more to say. No, okay. Yeah. This is going to be a short section because I don't remember much either. Basically, what would happen is anybody that got injured, even the slightest little pinprick, suddenly the siren would come and take them away. They would get a black spot on their hand. Oh, yes. They were taken away. And I think ultimately the siren was a nurse and it was something to do with a spaceship and fixing you know, any problems. sort of yeah. like Empty Child. Yeah, similar. I remember the atmosphere of the ship being yeah. very nice and so yeah. on, but beyond that, really not much has stayed with I me. I do remember that the character of um, Hugh Bonneville's character and his son reappear in A Good Man Goes to War. Ah, okay. Just as a sort of small cameo. Which I'm now desperate to watch, having done oh, the end of yeah, All so Those People. Actually, I was... Come on, randomizer, help us out. Yeah. yeah. So, Curse of Black Spots, that's yeah. our homework. I challenge you. Oh, that struck a chord. So, we're going to add another new feature. Another I'm, one? I'm sorry. It's called Challenge Chaz. Oh, nice. Yeah. Sorry. The idea is that one of us will challenge the other one to watch a story that they're less fond of and so they go off and watch it. Challenge Tim next week? Task Tim? I don't Task know. We'll work that out when it's my turn. Okay. The idea is that we'll challenge each other to watch a story that we're less fond of and then they'll go and report back. So this okay. is all inspired by your vocally complaining about how you've never sat through the mutants. Oh. So I thought we'd start off with the mutants. Oh. I challenge you to watch that. And then let us all know what oh, you think. Jeez, I've got such a history with this story. It's it's ridiculous. I've I've tried to watch it, genuinely tried to watch it at least twenty or thirty times. I get into episode one, and I fall asleep, or something happens, or I get distracted, or whatever. Well, your time has come. Uh, Either you'll finally watch it, Jesus. or we'll actually find out a cure for insomnia at long last. So we can report back next time and hear what you think. Look forward to it. Predictable as ever, Doctor. Doctor! Doctor! Now it's time for Doctor by Doctor, where we're going to randomly select a Doctor and then talk about that era. So last time it was Jodie, we hit 13, first of all. So I've set the random number generator from 1 to 12, and here goes. Then there's 12. I'm getting really suspicious about this random number generator. Hang on, I'm going to try it again. 9, 1, 8, 
Five. Okay, I'm convinced. So twelve it is. Now who was that? Peter Capaldi. Yeah. I wasn't. I, I alluded to this last time, and we sort mm. of almost began talking about Capaldi anyway. But I wasn't fond of Capaldi in this first series. But I I definitely warmed to him as it went, and by the end, I, you know, I was loving every minute of it. I think. Mm. Well, maybe not every minute of it because I wasn't fond of his swan song either. But how did you feel about Pierre Capaldi's era? I absolutely adored him. I adored him from the first moment. Um, I will say that my favourite Doctors are 1, 10 and 12. Mm-hmm. I think 12 probably slightly inches it over the other two. Well, first of all, when I heard he'd been cast, I was like, holy shit! The Doctor's older than me. <laughs> That'll be the last time ever. Wait, no, well, surely he was for most of your childhood as well. No, but since it came back, okay. I've always been older than the Doctor. Well, that was the big thing. Wrong. It bucked the trend of, yeah, of yeah, younger, absolutely. younger, sexy men. And absolutely. No, I mean, nothing wrong with that. And older stuff, sexy men. I mean, I'd seen Peter Capaldi and many, many things. I highly regarded him as an actor. I yes. thought he was absolutely brilliant and very convincing. His first season, I know it wasn't to everybody's taste, but I kind of liked the evolution of him. And I also loved that whole, am I a good man? Because it was such a juxtaposition from Matt Smith, who was joyous. And it was like, you know, you suddenly had an older doctor. And it was like when they tried to introduce Colin Baker... With that whole sort of, you know, he's a bit edgy, he's a bit more... Shouty. Shouty, whatever. It's as if they'd done it right this time. I remember one of his first lines, I think it was the Dalek story, he says, yeah, she's my carer, she cares so I don't have to. Oh, yes. And I loved, <laughs> you know, the, the abrasiveness, because it was very... had that first Doctor grumpf, gruff and sixth Doctor sort of vibe going on. And quite alien again. Yeah, very. Quite aloof. But also passionate. If you remember his... His last speech in the TARDIS, it was just, you know, love unconditionally, etc. That was a beautiful Uh, speech. The speech to the Master and Missy. He was very eloquent, uh, big speeches, you know, he's sort of passionate about everything and everyone. He said last week he's a different doctor each season. I think Mm. that's probably a very good way to summarise it. I think also that the the companions and the the kind of trajectories of the companions... um, so Clara had so so many identities as well. Mm. I I adored Bill. I thought Bill was. A, I thought sort of, she was perfect for perfect for him. Just such a good companion. Mm. I was kind of grew on me again. I feel Matt Lucas was kind of too much obvious comic relief at first, but then he earned it by the end. I think. See, I remember when he was cast. I was like, oh my god. I'm not a particular fan of Matt Lucas, but I do remember when Catherine Tate was announced and all the hatred again that came about with her casting. As a comedian. Uh, because, yeah, she's a comedian, you know, and she'll be terrible for Doctor Who. Now, I was a fan of Catherine Tate, and mm-hmm. I remember being really chuffed at this because I thought that Donna had great potential. So I remember discussing it with her late friend, Kenny Davison, and I was like, mm, I'm not keen on him, but I am not going to prejudge this because oh, I remember right. being pleased about Catherine Tate mm-hmm. and everybody else, but not everybody else, but lots and lots of people prejudging so I thought no I'm not going to be one of those people I'm going to watch it I'm going to give him a chance Mm -hmm. if I think he's rubbish still that's fine but 
I loved Naruto. <laughs> I absolutely adored him. I thought he was such a fun character. Yeah, he was a bit of comic relief. I didn't mind that even at the beginning. And he grew so well yes. throughout the episode. I remember having loads of theories at the time. <laughs> think, think Nardo possibly was the Watcher or something. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, idiotic theories. But, well, yeah, no, I, I, I really loved him. I loved Bill. Bill was a breath of fresh air in Doctor Who. Mm. He really was. One more thought on Donna and Nardo. I think it's maybe the curse of the comic actor, yeah. which is that everybody assumes that's all you're capable of. See, I think part of it is they both had sketch shows yes. with characters with catchphrases. And very popular ones. Very popular ones that eventually got annoying. Yeah. You know, because as all catchphrases do. So that's all that some people were seeing. But I mean, Catherine Tate's an RSC actress. Mm-hmm. Matt Lucas, very accomplished. He was in the stage of Les Mis. You yeah, know he's doing he's, musicals. He's, now. He's, they're both talented people. Yeah. But because TV is such an all encompassing medium, that's what people see. You know, yeah. there's sort of tunnel vision. Typecasting. When it way, comes it? to these sort of things, they don't see the body of their work. In yeah. general, yeah. Let's talk about more detail of Capaldi's era. I kind of love the way he's he's changed from season to season. You know, he's very serious and stern in his first season. He had his midlife crisis in his second <laughs> season. He was sort of uh, the compassion that had started coming through for him, and the empathy had started to come through as well. But I think he was just enjoying maybe the actor was enjoying the role as it was his dream role, really, because he was a massive fan yeah. at the time. And the Mondays and Cybermen yes. were his thing. He had particularly lobbied to see them, so, you know, Moffat indulged him. And but, what a fantastic story came out of that. That was an you amazing know. story, the atmosphere. Mm. It was just and it was brilliant. creepy as hell. High point of the era, I would say. Yeah. Robot of Sherwood, the Mark Gatiss one. I quite enjoyed that, which I was sort of surprised at because Gatiss's stuff is usually a bit on the silly side for me. Yeah, I'm not a particular fan of Mark Gatiss's Doctor Who. I don't dislike them avidly. I think he's a little bit weak on it for some reason. Mm. But this one, although it was very silly, I saw this as deliberate. What I think they were trying to say was, if Matt Smith's Doctor... Had done this, it'd be he'd be putting on he'd be tights. It, he'd yeah. suddenly be want to be Robin Hood's best mate. Yeah. Whereas this doctor, it's like he's rejecting it. I would shite your nonsense. That's the big thing it does, and really. I kind of love that. It you challenges know? the doctor. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> you know, he's denying that there's any truth in this yeah, myth because, from the get go. <laughs> because Clara's like suddenly fangirling yes. on Robin Hood, which I I totally love. And they're in the cell, and he's doing his best, and he eventually depresses Robin Hood. <laughs> because Robin Hood's so optimistic about everything, you yes. know, and in the way that Matt Smith was, there's an absolutely brilliant scene where he's using the sonic so you know try to work out and he does i think he does some um, alan adele or will scarlet it's like yeah. oh well you've only got three months you know because he's got some <laughs> sort of liver rot or something it's like, again with the uncaring yeah, doctor total, yeah. you know total disregard in a lot of ways similar to the way tom baker was especially if you look at something like pyramid of mars where mm-hmm. he sort of just pushes the dead body of the guy that they'd been friendly with 10 minutes earlier and it's it's played for chills Mm. there whereas it's sort of played for laughs yeah Yeah, so i mean this one's a romp without a doubt but 
as I say, I think it it's also to highlight the marked differences between Smith and, Smith and Capaldi. Yeah, well, I think for me the highlight of Peter Capaldi's first season was Flatline hmm. with the two dimensional creatures as a sort of really creepy concept and beautifully visually realised and I, I like these sort of clever sci-fi concepts. That was a particularly good episode. Um, introduced a few nice characters as well. Uh, Riggsy, who reappears. Local knowledge. Yeah. Oh yeah, and of course Christopher Fairbank. Of course. Uh, who been in loads of things. Particularly I remember him in the Sapphire and Steel episode. Uh, which he, one? Uh, it was the very last one. Oh yeah, uh, the cafe. And he played uh, one of the transuranics, but he was originally came across as a tinker. Here comes I, old Johnny Jack, me wife and kiddies on me back. That's right. So do you also like to listen very much? Yeah, I thought listen was wonderful. Um, it's, it's a Moffaty episode through and through, isn't oh, it? Yeah, definitely, but it was so creepy. And it was such a, a lovely idea, this sort of like apex predator, I yes. suppose. And also it had that wonderful scene in the barn that we would come to revisit again of the child doctor and the one line that Clara says you know sort of, uh, about fear makes companions of us all and I thought oh you know okay I, I get a lot of people are pissed off that Clara was the most important person in Doctor Who that's what they seem to think I didn't subscribe to that I just love the interwoven you know and I loved Clara as a character because Clara although she came across as confident Clara was um, OCD that was her problem. She needed everything to be organised and mm-hmm. neatly ticked in boxes. As a companion, I thought she, she worked wonderfully. As I say, I know a lot of people weren't fond, but... Oh, you I know, enjoyed Clara's time Courses for courses, you know. I get a bit nervous when the show starts tinkering with its own mythology and mm. to put the mm. words the Doctor says to Barbara yeah. into Clara's mouth felt it's sort of both enjoyable yes. as the reference but also a little cheeky. Yeah, I mean, I can understand some people would think, well, that's taken away from the heart from doctor. the thing. In my mind, that's the moment that he begins to be the Doctor. But yeah. it's always been that thing as well, that the companions keep the Doctor compassionate and yeah. human. And so, you know, the beginnings of his heroism, if you like, hmm. being influenced so strongly by a companion is not a bad note, I think. Again, with the circularity of it and the slight the slight chutzpah of it, if you like. Hmm. Now, Clara's also just trying to juggle that sort of double life as well throughout some of these episodes. I think the relationship with Danny, who's a lovely character as well. Yeah. yeah. Really enjoyed that sort of strand of the programme through those years. And that's another thing, Danny. I actually really liked Danny as a character. I liked the fact that he challenged the Doctor a bit. And he also, he had his own problems. He had his problems with authority. He'd been a soldier. Mm-hmm. He was suffering from PTSD. Yeah. And he saw the way that the Doctor was, you know, yeah. that sort of the commander, because he always took charge. Yeah, and know? he didn't take it. He mm. didn't just fall in line and no. that's it was a really elegant reanalysis of the doctor's sort of troubled relationship with military power yeah poking holes right back to the days of the big deer and the doctor's kind of very opportunistic mm. uh, use of military when he wants to and yeah. then disdain for it yeah when he you when, know when he doesn't another characteristic of the new doctor who is that he's challenged on that grounds much mm. much more than ever before yeah it's a a more complex and mature televisual world, I guess, and mm. 
that sort of character development is you know, expected the show would be two-dimensional without it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing I wanted to talk about in the Peter Capaldi era was the character arc of Maisie Williams playing a shielder. And this began with the girl who died and continued with the woman who lived. And then she returns at the end of the season, pretty much, for yeah. Face the Raven. Is that right? And, yeah, and Hellbent. It's a really great exploration, I think, of obviously the consequences of the Doctor's compassion mm. going wrong in the way that she doesn't just become a, a great person in the world and do nice things with her immortality. A sort of thing that show touches on from time to time is the sort of longer term consequences. I think this was done particularly skillfully and, and Maisie Williams is such a good actor. It's really mm. lovely to see her in this role. I've only ever seen her in Game of Thrones before that. It's sort of played like, well, the Doctor's, as you say, compassion. He's given her a gift. But it's a, it's been basically a curse, you know, because immortality has been used in fiction and people seek it and so forth and then the ultimate realisation is that you are going to outlive everybody you've ever loved. You're basically going to be alone for eternity because making friendships is too painful because eventually you will lose that person. You can see that even in the by the end of the episode, you see her looking at the sky and you get that montage of the clouds and slowly her face sort of fades from a smile to just nothing. She's sort of broken. And in the second episode, when they go through some of her journals at the time when she lost her children to yes. the plague, it's so heartbreaking because she was such an optimistic character who loved her village. And in a moment of compassion from the Doctor, he sort of destroyed her in a lot of ways. It's a reflection, I guess, on the struggle that the Doctor faces with his own longevity and the loss of his companions along the way. And also a big motivator for his constant travel and the constant reinvention, which Ashilda is denied. You know, she doesn't have the same gift of the TARDIS that he does. Mm, yeah, exactly. I mean, she's basically got to go the long way around, yes. as uh, they put in the 50th. She is seeing everything, all sort of elements of humanity, and she's literally there at the end of everything sitting in her little chair. Yeah. The next season we had the, the specials in between with the Husbands of River Song and the return of Dr. Mysterio. That mm. latter one being a, a very enjoyable sort of superhero tale. Mm. I, I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, we, um, it was silly but there was a lot of fun and that's basically what you always want for a Christmas special yeah. anyway, I think. And then into the final season, some wonderful episodes in this season. Oxygen, Extremis. Mm. And where are your highlights? Well, it's really difficult because it's a damn good series. Oxygen was a particular highlight. I liked the the Monks trilogy, Extremis, Pyramid at the End of the World. Yes. I mean, it's it's really got to be the world enough in time and the Doctor Falls. Yes, I mean... It's, the... it's absolutely perfect as a story. So the other huge arc going through the series is Missy, Michelle Gomez and latterly John Sim returning. And mm. the richness of Master versus Missy is mm. a wonderful kind of conclusion to that whole trajectory, I think. And the redemption story is really wonderful as well. Yeah, I mean, she plays it beautifully. She's so on point from 
the beginning of the character in general she's absolutely insane you know and then she plays this beautiful like you say redemption arc where by the end she dies to save the doctor yeah i think we share the doubts and the mistrust mm. of the doctor along the way mm. And it, it feels very bold to sort of even speculate that a character who existed in the past to be the nemesis could be anything else. But of course, they were friends to begin with. It's like they said in the recent one where the Master said, when does it all end? He says, well, how else would you notice me? Yeah. There's still this thing between them, be it rivalry, be it an unrequited love, whatever. There's always been that sort of need to sort of connect. I think I've never really loved the Master as a character, mm. except in moments and in stories which are just good in their own sort of bubble. I think I genuinely fell in love with the Master when she was missing mm -hmm. because she was so well drawn and so much a, a character you know I mean it just felt so real I mean even in Dark Water and uh, Death in Heaven you could see the chemistry between them it was it was electrifying something that New Doctor Who does at its best the show allows most characters to have some humanity to have some depth yeah. there's less of the two dimensional villainy yeah I mean, that's modern drama in general, but I think it is something that lacked in the old series. Well, it's a bit like the Zygon inversion. You look at the Zygons, okay, they were a one-off monster, very popular, mm -hmm. but they obviously had a goal, etc., but they were never fleshed out. Then you look at that story, mm -hmm. and that's such a powerful metaphor for immigration, for war, for hatred, yeah. you know, for distrust. It's another redemption story. Yeah, they give them a real person real pathos etc yeah you know we talk about the pace of drama being so so much faster nowadays than it was and yet with all that time and leisure what's changed I don't know the answer to this question what's changed that suddenly we can tell stories that do have those dimensions yeah. to them it feels deeply humanist in the way mm. that Doctor Who's kind of always been I think sort of refusing to give anybody up for lost absolutely could it have been affected by tangential deviation coming out of the warper limbs for Tangent of the Week this time, we're going to talk a little bit about Richard Herring, and Chaz is uh, a big fan. Yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I've been a fan for many years. Uh, you still have his uh, Fist of Fun show, Good mm -hmm. Morning with Richard, Not Judy, etc. What is the tangential Doctor Who connection? He and his comedy partner at the time, Stuart Lee, appeared in real time, uh, Big Finish, uh, Colin Baker audio. And we have a personal... Uh, link to that in a very sort of loose way as our friend David Darlington who works for Big Finish is the one who kind of roped them in uh, as characters on that particular story. So for those who've never heard of Richard Herring what is he? Basically Richard Herring is an actor, writer, stand-up comedian who is reasonably well known but not sort of stadium well known you know he's not like Russell Howard or Frankie Boyle or somebody who fills thousands seater arenas. He's a successful comedian but as I say he flies under the radar quite a lot. I started going to see him live when I used to live in Luton. My son was about 11 or 12 at the time. He had some sort of confidence issues. What I decided to do was to start taking him to comedy and live shows. Um, maybe sit in the front, kind of get picked on a little, if you know what I mean. Just to sort of bring him out of his shell. And also, I happened to see that Richard Herring was going to be at our local theatre. And I was like, oh my God, I used to love Richard Herring, you know. Perfect and opportunity. So, went along, absolutely loved the show, had a talk with him, etc. And he sort of... <laughs> 
spoke to Connor a bit during the show. And as time went on, we went to more and more shows. We went to a thing he used to do called AI Automa. Uh, as it occurs to me, we went there for the last series sort of thing, and we went there for an episode. Connor basically took up about 15 minutes of the episode. One of his lines was, so Connor, what's occurred to you today? And Connor had said, well, it's occurred to me that it's my birthday today and my cheap-ass dad is taking me here instead of getting me a party. <laughs> Great applause, etc. So it was really nice. And Richard Herring does like his kind of awkward acronyms, doesn't he? Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. Um, the yeah. one I'm familiar with is Rehelistapa. Rehelistapa. It's a Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast. They've actually been going now for, I think, there's about 150 of them most of them are video the early ones were only audio but that's the, the ones I've listened to yeah. I haven't seen the videos but most of them are video and they started off as you could pay to see them but now he basically does them as kickstarters so they're all free Oh, Every great. single one of them. They're on YouTube, they're free. He's had the likes of Stephen Fry, mm-hmm. famously, where Stephen Fry had admitted he'd attempted suicide, yes. for example. There's some pretty weighty issues sometimes. It's so free-flowing. It's not like your normal interviews. I mean, you get some ridiculous questions. He's got a book that he's got out called Emergency Questions. <laughs> Stupid questions, the sort of thing you, you tend to sort of say when you're a bit pissed or something. It's fascinating the rabbit holes these things go down with some celebrities. I mean, you had Michael Sheen on the podcast recently, mm-hmm. so we've had some pretty big hitters. We've got some, I say unknown, but unknown to, say, the general public. People like uh, Michael Legg, who's appeared on his mm-hmm. podcast about, mm, must have been about eight times by now. I mean, he's always good value. You and I both big fans of Michael I know Legg. Michael Legg through Dave Gorman's podcasts, yeah. which could be a tangent of my own some week, yeah. actually. I mean, I've seen Gorman. Michael Legg at the Edinburgh Fringe quite a lot. In mm-hmm. fact, I remember one day I bumped into him six times. It was becoming <laughs> a bit creepy. I'm sure that's in the dictionary under S. <laughs> I've enjoyed listening to those podcasts. I haven't really seen much of the wider work. Is there mm. a place you would recommend people to start? His stuff is available at a website called gofasterstripe.com. All his sort of stand-up shows and stuff are available for either download or DVD but if you don't want to pay go on YouTube type in Richard Herring's Lester Square Theatre Podcast or Rahel Estabar and you will come across a wealth of um of Richard his stuff, Richard Herring. Also, all the episodes of Good Morning with Richard, not Judy, are on there. That is a series that him and Stuart Lee done. It was supposed to be similar to a magazine show like This Morning, etc. But it was obviously a bit more subversive. Yeah. You know, you had a few sketches in there, a few characters. Everything he puts out, apart from, say, stand-up DVDs, are free. Now, you would think, well, how do you make a living? Mm-hmm. But he's managed to make such a good living out of doing that because he's he's never compromised on things like that. Advertising, for example, he won't advertise anything. He's got some things on his podcast, but they're mainly for stuff like Go Faster Stripes mm-hmm. or something insignificant that you get a bit of fun out of. I just really love the guy. I think he's great, and I think more people should know him. He deserves to be better known. Great. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you have any feedback or questions or Nigerian fortunes that we can be offered, then you can reach us at randomizerpodcast at gmail.com. And please follow us on Twitter at randomizerpod. In both cases, that's randomizer with an S, not a Z. The three is silent. <laughs>
And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. That was back to front. <laughs>